0: Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words.
1: This is the Friday version of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers.
0: That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time.
1: And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work.
0: And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at ReadersPodcast.com.
1: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence.
0: We're also grateful to those of you who offer member support, for which I'm pleased to offer in return, member-only content curated with our authors and myself. You can find out more about this member-only content and how you can help authors give voice to their written words at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: When Landis is not getting under the cover at bookstores, at events, and on the road, he does it in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte.
0: But enough with the prologue. Let's get under the covers. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Hey, listeners. Welcome to this under the covers episode of a Charlotte Reeves podcast. I'm here at Bookmarks in Winston-Salem with author Caleb Johnson. Caleb, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. We're we're talking about Caleb's book today, Treeborn. Uh, Treeborn is an honorable mention for the Southern Book Prize and long-listed for the Crook's Corner Book Prize and uh, one of Deep South Magazine's recommended books of the summer for 2018. Lots of other good recognition. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Thanks. You're too young to have all the success, you know? Uh,
2: Maybe. 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 (laughs) Uh,
0: Short description about you before we get started here with the book. Um, I think uh, you grew up in uh, Arley, Alabama. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Studied journalism at the University of Alabama. Yeah. Now, you went out to Wyoming, but you were sort of Alabama, born and bred, right?
2: Yeah, my whole life until I moved to Wyoming, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you hadn't lost your accent, right? It's it's not as strong as it used to be <laughs> nice if you can strong, believe that. Nice as you, so being Alabama born and bred and educated, how has that influenced your writing and influenced this particular book?
2: For Treeborn, entirely, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, really entirely. You know, yeah. it's set in a fictional uh, Alabama town that that pulls some from the region I grew up and and some from other parts of the state too. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, the book's a big love letter to my family and 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 the place i'm from and and, and the state i'm from um yeah, so it's really important to me in, in the writing of it it's
0: a great way to describe it because it is almost like a she's writing history you know on the page here this character and we're going to talk about the protagonist here in a little bit but uh, you're in an mfa at university of wyoming right Yep, that's right a little bit different geographic setting than what you were used to growing up
2: Different geographic setting. Culturally, not so oh, different because really, really. it, it's Wyoming's such a rural state gotcha. and the part of Alabama I'm from is extremely rural, too. So, yeah, yeah the mountains are much bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, people maybe dress a little more like like cowboyish, I guess. Um, yeah. Did but you get
0: a cowboy hat while you are out there? I did not. Yeah. No, no yeah. I didn't. didn't, didn't too, too
2: much hair and too big of a head to, to <laughs> th- find one for me.
0: Now, your writing appears in Southern Living, The Parish Review Daily, The Bitter Southerner, Lit Hub, and others, and you've earned fellowships and grants uh, from various places, including the Sewanee Writers Conference uh, and the University of Wyoming. Um, That's great stuff. Uh, Wonderful praise. I looked at your website, and you're not a pretentious person because uh, that outfit you're wearing.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. my that's my writing outfit. My yeah. my overalls and, and my dog at, at my side. That's the <laughs> that's the two two things I need to be comfortable Did you enough say to write.
0: Your writing outfit. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're yeah. If if you go on, on on Caleb's website, you will see that uh, he's it's kind of a nondescript room. I don't know, it looks like there's a whiteboard behind you, perhaps with some writing on it, or maybe that's a reflection. I can't tell. But you're just in a sort of a sterile place in a little chair, and you got your overalls on and a t-shirt. And your dog's there, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's not a whiteboard. It's actually kind of the the way I have to work on novels is eventually I'll I'll sort of reverse outline them. So I'll I'll go through each chapter and just on a piece of notebook paper, printer paper, um, write who's in the chapter, when is it taking place, what's sort of the main action, and I'll tape those up on the wall. So Um, those
0: are actually taped images on the wall? Yeah,
2: yeah, they're taped pieces of paper with with just kind of chapter descriptions or rough outlines. That way I can hold the whole book in my head, or maybe I still can't do that, but I'm closer to than otherwise.
0: I know I need to do that in my study at home, but my wife doesn't like it when I put stuff all over the walls, you know?
2: Yeah, I can, I can understand that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay. So yeah, you got the black and white dog gazing off at something, not at the camera. The dog is, uh, is that the real Caleb Johnson? What we see in that picture, you know, is that how uh, I think so? It's it's how I see myself down to earth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Just,
2: it was actually, and it's, that's not in my current, writing room, but in a previous one, and we were getting ready to move soon. And, uh, my wife is a photographer and, and she wanted to take kind of a candid picture. So we would remember, so I would remember, you know, what, what what it was like to ride in there. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, she just came in and I think all we did was move the chair a little away from the desk because the, the lighting was better Uh in that spot. And other than that, it was just, I'd been sitting there working and she said, let me take a picture. And that, that was it.
0: It 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 almost, Looked like it could be a prison cell, you know.
2: It feels that <laughs> way sometimes. I mean, I don't know what it actually feels like to be in a prison cell, right. but, it, but, but but it, it <laughs> yeah, it could feel punitive in, in some ways yeah. at times. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, before we get into the covers, let's talk about the book cover for Treeborn a second. You've got, uh, you sent me the electronic version, but now you're holding it up and I can see it. So, uh, yellow background cover. You got the tree and the born, which is one name in the book, but it's broken on the cover by this uh what is that a peach tree
2: i think that's the idea behind it yeah yeah
0: did i get that so it's sort of the symbolism there yep yep that's it the name is broken in half by the the peach tree
2: yep i think so
0: ah broken broken i got it well who who did you cover is that part of the publisher's job
2: yeah it was just someone or some folks at picador um i didn't uh i wasn't really involved with this cover design they just kind of came to me with it and said hey here's our cover and uh i'm i'm not a you know, a cover. I'm not a say? visual artist. No, yeah. I, I appreciate a good cover, but I yeah. couldn't have gone about telling them how to come up with one. So I said, "Y'all, y'all do your thing there, and I'll, I'll worry about what's inside it."
0: So what what does that image evoke for you when you first saw it? Um, I mean, I I had read a little bit of the story, right? So that's where I came up with my interpretation about it. But without that knowledge, what do you think people see when they see that cover?
2: I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Wouldn't even begin to begin to know what others see. But but for me, I think about you know, it's it's very much a family novel, you know. Okay. So what often comes to mind for me is, is the idea of a family tree, you know. Oh, there you um, go. I like that. Yeah, and and branches of that, uh, okay. which we see multiple branches of of the tree-born family tree as the novel unfolds. So I guess that is what um first comes to mind for me when I look at it. Mm.
0: Were well, you here for the movable feast with the. Uh, we're here in February recording. Uh, this will come out later in the series here. But uh, I had another author I interviewed here in bookmarks today for this event, Belinda Smith Sullivan. She wrote a a cookbook called Just Peachy. I don't know if y'all have met yet, but you should while you're here because you're, your book is set in, kind of in a peach orchard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so uh, why, why a peach orchard for your book?
2: Uh, Alabama, a lot of... Folks in the South that, that haven't spent much time in Alabama may not realize it, but we have a a small peach growing region, just like South Carolina and, and Georgia do, that we are very proud of and claim that the peaches are the most delicious of, of all peaches grown in the South. And uh every summer my family every summer we could, we'd go on vacation to the Gulf of Mexico and, and you would drive straight through that region um and we'd stop and get a basket of peaches to to eat down at the beach or, or to bring home with us on the way back. Um, and I moved to Wyoming in the summer when, when the peaches were just coming into season and I was homesick. I mean, I was excited to go and and see somewhere new, but I was homesick, um, thinking a lot about home. And that was one thing that because of the time of year, I think was really on my mind. Um, and I kind of didn't know where I was going with the book in terms of, I didn't have a real plan or outline and I often start with place. And so I thought, why not, um, Set this on a peach orchard and, and uh, kind of nice. go from there.
0: All right, so you ready to get under the covers? So yeah, let's do it. Right. do it. We'll be right back. But first, I want to thank our episode sponsor today, Warren Publishing, a premier hybrid publisher since 1988, right here in the Charlotte community. Authors benefit from Warren's relationships with global distributors, wholesalers, and retailers, as well as their history of publishing award-winning and best-selling books. You can find out more at WarrenPublishing.net. Warren Publishing. Books done wisely.
1: If you like our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, please consider leaving a short written review about Charlotte Reader's podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you leave a review, it helps authors reach more listeners.
0: You can keep up with news about the show and member only content for our member supporters by joining our email list. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join the list, we will give you a free ebook written by me.
1: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Right, yeah.
0: so, so we start off over in a little place called Alberta, Alabama. And I, I went and Googled it to see if it was a real place. Mm-hmm. It is, right?
2: It is, but this is <laughs> not... The Alberta in my book is not Come the Alberta, on, Alberta of the, of the real place. The
0: real Alberta has some cool history to it. It does. You know, it it, does. It, it's uh, only got so many people in it, maybe 1498, according to Wikipedia. And it was founded in the early 20th century by a Chicago-based land company. And it had a lot of German settlers there. And they spoke German and so forth. So this is not quite that... it's it's
2: not it at all yeah yeah. geographically the the town in the book couldn't really exist i kind of like pulled disparate parts of my state's geography together and sort of Uh. bunch them up um partially because i didn't want to be the book's very much about myth and myth making and and Mm -hmm. how we kind of conceive of ourselves and our stories in those ways and and so i wanted the setting to represent that and i also didn't want to be burdened or weighed down as a fiction writer with want to get historical yeah. facts, yeah. you know, I wasn't yeah. so interested in that. I was interested in more of like capital T truths. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And so I named it Alberta in my novel because that's a a strain of peach, uh, the Alberta uh, peach. And, and so that's what I named it after.
0: So before we go further with the book itself, give, give us kind of a high level overview of the book and what, what we're going to see sort of the elevator pitch here for what this book's about.
2: Sure. My, my latest elevator pitch that I think I should have started out from the beginning with is it's, it's kind of like a, a redneck version of 100 years of solitude set in Alabama is what the book is kind of like. <laughs> okay. So um, some readers will, will, that'll perk their ears up and some will say, huh, I guess, but uh, it's a family novel. It takes place over about 80 or 90 years in, in the course of the history of this town, Alberta, Alabama. And it mostly focuses on the Treeborn family and, multiple generations of, of that family line, but also a couple friends and neighbors who were imported and and really like family members, just not blood kin. Um, but the story's bookended by the construction of a hydropower dam um, and then its decommission. Uh, and, and what happens in between is the Treeborn family sort of comes together and struggles and and loves and, and loses, and, and we sort of see them fall apart in, in the last remaining um Descendant of, of that family is Janie Treeborn, who's who's remaining on on the family's land and refusing to leave despite the dam being decommissioned and, and floodwaters heading her way.
0: That's a little bit of a deliverance feel to it, right? A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except not the not paddling down the Chattahoochee River. No, but, no, no. Uh, no, no, none of that. But this character, Janie Treeborn, uh, the, the name Treeborn, how did that come to you?
2: It just kind of came, to be honest with you. That, names sort of. I don't know. They kind of just come to me, and I know mm-hmm. when they're right, or I mm-hmm. know when they're kind of a placeholder. Mm-hmm. And and that name, Janie Treeborn. Part of it with me for names is is the sound. Is it, I, it's I kind of like the way root, it rooted
0: to the soil almost. I mean, it, I, it,
2: I think so. I mean, I think for her anyway. Eventually, like this whole notion of peach trees in the soil and family land came up in writing the novel, but it wasn't like a a Dickensian decision to to name the family Treeborn. It just sort of. I really wrote the novel in an intuitive way and, and just kind of burning through pages and looking back and trying again and, and fi- feeling my way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so it was just sort of one of those coincidences that if you spend enough time on a project in a world and a story, they sort of seem to just emerge in a way in my experience anyway.
0: Yeah. Good. All right. So you got a little read here. Let's set it up because so, it's an interesting way that you tell the story. Um, I think if I'm right, the, because I've read, I hadn't had a chance to finish the book yet, but confessions but that way I can't give away the ending, so we're good mm-hmm. <laughs> we're good there but you you start the story and you're telling it uh through a discussion between the elderly and I guess the grandson is that right? Is it?
2: Well, it's an unnamed listener that's come to kind of interview her and get her stories. So related. At first, we we? we don't know. Okay, maybe. Okay, so I was speculating that it was a
0: grandson or something. Then okay, so why don't you start off and uh, give us a feel for the first couple of pages of this book?
2: Sure, I'd be glad to. The water was coming, but Janie Treeborn would not leave. She lived alone in this house perched on the edge of a roadside peach orchard in Alberta, Alabama ever since Lee Malone sold it to her. Sold maybe not the right word for the price she paid, the price he would take, but it was hers and she would not leave. Rather, the water take her too. She'd been telling her visitor exactly how she came to own the house, which was once Lee's office, and before that his boyhood home. A complicated matter. To tell how this house and the surrounding property became hers, she needed to tell how it became Lee's, and to do that, she needed to first tell about a man named Mr. Prince. See, back then folks thought Mr. Prince wasn't but a rumor and a last name, she continued. But he was real, living in one of them mansions down on the river. Anyhow, Lee started working at the Peach Pit not long after the storm. Worked here for years. Then one day, Mr. Prince carried him to lunch out at Woodrow's. The hills would have been about the only place they could eat together. They ordered, sat down. Mr. Prince said he was selling the orchard, the old cannery, and a little cottage he owned in town for whatever was in Lee's billfold right that moment. Can you imagine... Mr. Prince died not too long after. Most of my growing up, folks still thought Lee wasn't nothing but the orchard manager. Would have got to a certain kind of person, not to him, not Lee Malone. Janie Treborn come to own the peach orchard and the other properties once belonging to Mr. Prince the same way as Lee Malone did. She sat at a greasy tabletop inside Woodrow's pit Cook barbecue where years before, Lee counted out of his billfold $2.05 and a receipt for a bag of dog food. And she searched for what money she had in the depths of a purse she felt foolish toting around lee's heart was weak by then he considered turning the land over to janey for a long long time she thought she would have handed everything down to her visitor this young man sitting with a tape recorder on his lap and a long microphone gripped in his hand so why'd she not janey couldn't remember did it matter he was here he was home had her same big forehead and freckled nose her granddaddy Hugh's thick black hair and high-cut cheeks, a tree-born, she thought, through and through, right down to the bone. "'Do you remember how much it was you paid?' he asked. "'Foot, yes, I do,' she said. "'You reckon your grandmom would up and forget something like that? "'It was $16 and a pack of chewing gum. "'Did you ever regret not paying him more?' "'Regret, foot,' she said. "'No amount would have been sufficient. "'This place was priceless, but how to explain that?' "'Lee's body might have blunted.' Janie went on, but his mind stayed sharp till the end. I always tell that if mine ain't, then somebody please shove a gun right here and fire that sucker twice. There's one right yonder in the dresser drawer. I don't give a rip if it sounds morbid. Life's morbid. Love sure enough is. Lee Malone taught me everything about the peach growing business. Everything. even helped run the fruit stand through his last good summer on earth. Could still sing his head off, too. Them trees yonder, we planted them together. Look out that-a-way and you'll see where the house he died in once stood. Wasn't much to the place itself, but it was in Alberta, and belonged to him, and there was a time that meant something. See? Other side of the road there, just below the water tower, Ricky Birdsong fell off of. Are there any pictures of Mr. Malone? The young man asked. Janie got up from her recliner chair and took one of the dozens of photo albums shelved in the living room, stacked in cardboard boxes pushed against the wall. She opened to a picture of the old Alberta water tower, pointed, turned the page, black and whites of folks standing by water with dogs by log houses and wood piles next to pickup trucks and wagons at school, at church in decorated cemeteries along fence lines and unidentifiable roadsides and hedgerows. Somehow, not one picture of Lee Malone.
0: Yeah, this almost has a lyrical quality to it, but yet it's grounded in this voice, you know, this, this woman, Janie Treborn and, uh, uh, this phrase foot? <laughs> Where does that come from?
2: Uh, the the phrase foot comes from uh my grandmama and her sisters who who were um grew up Southern Baptist, um, but still had sort of a vulgar sense of humor and, and sort of sometimes semi wild inclinations, I guess. But uh-huh. but when they wanted to, to curse around us grandkids they'd say foot. then they would try to contain themselves instead of saying a curse yeah, the word they'd f say word. foot yeah yeah foot, yes. well not even the f word but it could be any any Anything. four-letter foot, word Foot, yes regret, yeah. Foot, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: All right. so who is your favorite character in this book
2: oh that's a tough one uh Janie was one of the first ones you know so I, I mm-hmm. have a real affinity for her I guess I spent the most time with her uh probably but um Ricky Birdsong is a is a character I, I care a lot for and
0: what, and what does he do does he-
2: Ricky Birdsong is a he's a former high school football star in the town that suffers an injury that sort of derails his trajectory and he comes back to live in alberta and, and becomes sort of a a connecting thread of a lot of different characters in town and is mm. sort of taken care of and loved by many disparate populations in the town um so he's a binding force and and he's um semi i don't want to say he's based on but there's some of him and folks i knew growing up that mm. that makes me have a real affinity for him i think
0: what is the capital t truth that you're exploring in this book
2: you know, that I guess that would be for readers to decide. I, I mean, I have my ideas, you know, but at this point it's— Was it, there something you were searching, it's,
0: kind of exploring when you wrote it?
2: Memory, I think, for me. Yeah. I, you know, I'd, I'd moved away to Wyoming, a um, mm-hmm. thousand miles from home, and, and I missed my family, and I wondered if I'd ever get back to the life that had, had brought me to that point. So I, I was thinking a lot about memory.
0: Mm. And uh just quickly, a little writing life here, because uh, the book has a great voice, great— A lot of little vignettes that kind of tie together against this idea that the water's coming. A great first line, the water's coming, but she didn't care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, you teach at Appalachian State University. I do, yeah. Watauga County is where I like to fish, read, and write, and hike, so it's a a great area for that. How do you like being in the high country as a writer and a teacher?
2: I love it. It's I mean, my job is amazing. I'm I'm working with just brilliant, earnest students that Mm. that come to... um, learn and get better every day mm-hmm. uh you know the high country is beautiful uh, i'm more of a i'm more of a rural person yeah. I, That that's sort of my well, you comfort can get zone pretty, rural
0: pretty quick up you, there you
2: yeah, yeah you can <laughs> and, and we do um and, and i love to be outside too like yeah. you said you know so i've got a dog that we talked about in the photo we like yeah. to hike and, and be out in the woods as much as possible did you always want to be a teacher not always yeah. um but but teaching creative writing at a university is the it it fulfills me and and contributes to my writing and challenges me, but it's also sort of the best quality of life. I'm not going to make a living off my books um, Mm, most likely. And so it's the best quality of life for for me to have a a day job that instead of taking away from my writing, it enhances it in some way. Um, So yeah, it's the best, best compromise I found.
0: So what do you tell your writing students on the first day of class? And what do you tell them on the last day of class?
2: On the first day of class, I, I, tell them, you know, you can write stories set anywhere during any time about any kind of characters that that you want to in this class. There are no restrictions based on that. But um, I want you this semester to really think about why you write the stories you do and why you're interested in in them. And I want you to um, make a promise to yourself that you're going to follow those interests once you've interrogated them enough to understand them. Because if, if I tell them, if you, if you're not interested in what you're writing about as the writer, then nobody no else one else gets, probably if you're, will if you're, be if either. If
0: you're not obsessed with it, nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just
2: don't want them to feel like, I, yeah. I think sometimes we are conditioned to think that like, these are the types of stories that, that writers write. These are serious quote unquote mm-hmm. stories or, or whatever, whatever they may be. And, and I want them to know that the story can be anything, but if, if they're not if they're not genuinely interested in, it, if they're not feeling some heat coming from it, then it's just a waste of everybody's time. So,
0: what about the last day when when they've been through the class and and you know they're going into the wide world of competition and rejection and everything that goes with it? Do you give them any encouragement uh, in terms of what's what's ahead?
2: Not on the last day necessarily. I feel like by that point we've we've built all that in, okay. so they're they're like ready. So you're for war- it.
0: you're warning them ahead of time. Y- yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I'm not warning them, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm just. You know, we talk about those kind of things, and and by the last day, I'm asking them to do the reflecting Good. and, and yeah. to do the conversation about yeah. what, like, what did you learn? What is there still left to learn? You know, what do you want to do next? How did your writing practice solidify or not? How can you continue that next semester or after graduation, wherever wherever mm-hmm. they're going?
0: And do you build a routine into your writing? You kind of separate your teaching life from your writing life so that you can focus.
2: Yeah, I'm a I'm an early morning writer because oh, yeah. that way. I don't have as many demands on my time or consciousness and also I can get something done. And if I get really busy the rest of the day with teaching stuff, I, I don't have to worry about trying to rush home in the evening and, and get anything done. So that's how I take care of it as first thing.
0: So as I said, you, you're, you're a young writer to now have a book that's getting a lot of good press. Um, how has that shaped your own journey here in terms of writing the experience that you've had and, Writing this book and putting it out and talking about it—is it has it been what you thought it would be? Has it uh, added some extra pressure for the next one? Uh, what are you thinking?
2: I don't know what I thought it would be. It's <laughs> it's still wild, Landis. Like yeah. it's it's you know every time I glance down at a cover or yeah, see it a, in a store yeah, and I see like my that's, name, that's cool. I kind of have to do a double take, you know, because yeah. I really I didn't I come from a really rural blue collar place and I knew a lot of storytellers, but sure. but I didn't know writers, you know, who and I didn't know that this was something you could do. I mean, we read, we read dead riders in school, you know, I kind of thought that all the books uh, <laughs> yeah. had been written and everybody died and yeah. we were just reading those. And so it was, you know, I had to learn that. And I eventually, when I got to college, you know, started having some mentors who, who had right. done it and, and were very gracious and kind to me. Um, but I don't know what I expected, but I'm just really grateful for, I mean, I'm grateful to be sitting here with you. I'm grateful anytime someone reads it or Mm -hmm. picks up a copy or emails me, it's just an amazing thing to spend years on something, making it up in your head and then have someone say, Hey, this impacted me enough to write this email or to come approach you at an event or or pass it along to a friend. I mean, I try to, I try to be grateful of every one of those Mm -hmm. encounters because it really is a magical thing, I think.
0: So a lot of, authors come at writing later in their lives uh, but you're coming at it in an earlier stage so where do, where do you think you'll be or want to be in 5 years and 10 years as a writer
2: i want to just keep writing books and publishing them and hopefully folks read them just whatever yeah. book i want to write and can finish to the best of my ability um i want to keep teaching at, at, yeah. at the university as my as my day job and mm-hmm. you know as long as I'm doing those two things and, and got my health and my family and friends around me, that's yeah. that's really what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, and,
0: and when you're teaching, you've got the demands of that, how long does it take you to to put out a book?
2: Well, I I mean, I think for me everyone's gonna be different. You know, this one took me like seven years to write and totally right. get it out in the world. Um, here we sit in this Winter of 2020. uh The book came out in summer 2018. So I'm approaching two years, and uh, I'm working on the next one. Yeah, you know, so yeah. I, I don't know how long it's gonna. I've, uh, I've learned to stop putting making predictions because then I just look I look foolish.
0: Yeah, don't don't promise right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, look, uh Caleb, it's been great talking with you today. We could we could keep going, but we're we're out of time for this episode. uh the Listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about the book uh, images. Uh, as well, and uh, how to get in touch uh, with Caleb on social media, etc. Uh, Caleb, thanks so much for sitting down and talking about your wonderful book.
2: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed
0: yeah. it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written word.
1: Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author.
0: But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life of a local or regional author.
1: Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone.
0: If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter.
1: We'd love to have you as a member.
0: And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me.
1: Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media.
0: Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions?
1: You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
0: Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.